And if you would, please turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading, which is taken from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Genesis 3, 1 to 7. And once you have that passage marked uh, with a finger there, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 8 to 22 for our sermon passage. Again, 1 Samuel 24, verses 8 to 22. That is our sermon passage. But let's begin by reading Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7. Brothers and sisters, I know you know this, but we all need to be reminded that this is the very Word of God. These are not the words of man that you are about to hear. These are not the words of Pastor Troutman that are about to be uttered. This is the Word of God. Therefore, it is deserving of your fullest attention. So do all that you can within your powers to corral your thoughts and focus in on what the Lord has to say. Genesis 3, 1-7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat any of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now turning to 1 Samuel 24, beginning at verse 8 and reading through the end of the chapter. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. 
He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his, and his men went up to the stronghold. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. <clears throat> Our gracious God, we are grateful for your word. We're thankful that you bore up men to set your word down, that you inspired them, that you breathed out and into them and gave them exactly what to write. We thank you that we can hold your word in our hands and that we can hear it read and read it together because your word is truth. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would guide us by the truth, that you would light our paths with the truth, that you would give us wisdom in accordance with the truth. And we pray, O Lord, that you would use this time where your word is preached to do just that as you see fit. Please bless the ones who hear. Bless the one who preaches. May your spirit use the preached word of God to work in the hearts of your children and to make us more and more like Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen. Now, a couple of weeks ago, when we considered the first seven verses of 1 Samuel 24, we saw that the will to take another human life involves the dehumanization of that person to, to make the death seem as if it isn't murder. If, if the thing that you're killing isn't a human being, then it's, then it's not murder. Despite what our culture says, what our culture tries to force upon us, only human beings are capable of being murdered, not animals, not other kinds of creatures as terrible as as certain kinds of animal deaths are, and as bad as, as cruelty toward animals is, it does not carry the same weight as cruelty and murder of human beings. We see this with regard to, to abortion, where very few people who are in favor of abortion speak of the baby whose life is being taken in terms of the baby's humanity. They dehumanize the baby. They, they refer to it in more archaic and, and veiled terms. If it's unwanted, it's a fetus. If it's wanted, of course, it's a baby. Slavery also involves dehumanization because the worst forms of chattel slavery require uh, that the owner regard the slave as mere property and not a human being. And we saw a couple of weeks ago at the beginning, the first seven verses of chapter 24, that David's men, they regarded Saul not as a human being, they regarded him as an enemy. 
as an other. He wasn't one of them. He wasn't a trusted person. He was the enemy. And so they told David he needed to go and kill Saul when the opportunity arose. And Saul entered the cave to relieve himself. He was merely an enemy who must be struck down. But Saul is no better than David's men. Saul's obsession with ending David's life was rooted in seeing David only as an enemy, not as a human being. Certainly not as a son in a figurative sense. In the words of one commentator on this passage, David has been away from Saul's vicinity now for a long time. And during that period, the king, harassed as he is, has been able to build up an evil picture of David that no one dared contradict and which has never been tested against reality. To put it slightly differently, Saul had constructed for himself an alternate reality based upon lies that he kept telling himself about David. Perhaps based on lies that others were telling Saul about David, about how treacherous David was, about his schemes to kill Saul and to take the throne from him. And in response to all of this, David counters all of these lies with the truth, hoping that the truth will set Saul free. As we consider this passage, as we work our way through it, I would ask you to to hold this thought before you. The God who is truth embodied took the weight of our lies upon himself when he was raised on the cross. The God who is truth embodied took the weight of our lies upon himself when he was raised on the cross. I've divided the sermon into three sections today. The first, did God really say? The second section, reality check. And the third, exchanging a lie for the truth. Again, did God really say? That's the first section of the sermon. Reality check is the second, and exchanging a lie for the truth is the third. So let's look at the first section, did God really say? I think that it is safe to say that behind any sinful behavior lies the question, did God really say not to do this? Whether that question is conscious or unconscious, whether it is explicitly thought in our heads or stated out loud, or whether it is something uh, that is not present to our waking mind, I think that it is there. It might take on slightly different forms, but the question is fundamentally the same. It is a lack of faith that God's word is truth. That he will keep his word. That he does not lie. Now Saul has been doubting God's word for some time now. The first recorded instance being in chapter 13 when he doubted God's prophet Samuel, the one who gave, gave God's word to his people. Saul, in chapter 13, doesn't believe Samuel in cha- Samuel's words that he gave to Saul in chapter 10, that he would come to Gilgal in seven days and meet Saul there. That Samuel would offer sacrifices to the Lord and would show Saul what to do. Saul went to Gilgal, he, he waited the seven days, and Samuel didn't show up. Unfortunately, as soon as Saul decided to take matters into his own hands, as soon as Saul decided to offer the sacrifices that only the prophet of the Lord could offer, Samuel showed. He arrived. And after Saul offered his excuses to Samuel, when Samuel questioned him about what he was doing, Samuel said to him, beginning in chapter 13, verse 13, You have done foolishly. 
You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul manufactured a lie about what God had said through Samuel, or he simply doubted that Samuel's word was true, which was a lie in itself, and he did what was right in his own eyes. And he's done a similar thing with David. Having been told that the kingdom was going to be torn from him and given to another, and realizing that David was God's favored one, Saul convinced himself into believing that David wanted him dead, and he was actively trying to kill uh, that, that David was actually actively, actively trying to kill Saul. And that is exactly the lie that David confronts in our passage. After Saul had finished with his business in the cave, he departed, and David followed him out. And, and verse eight says that he called after Saul, saying. My Lord, the King. And when Saul, probably startled, astonished, actually, there was David, his enemy, calling out to him. As soon as Saul turns around to face David, David bowed and he put his face to the ground. Now you see this, don't you? In the animal kingdom, especially among dogs or other pack-like animals, the alpha gets the obeisance of all of the other dogs in the pack. And they bow down and they show that they are no threat to the Alpha. David here, not to speak too much in animalistic terms, but David here is clearly showing that he has respect for Saul and that he is not going to do anything to harm Saul. And in verse 9, David says, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? And then in verse 10, David proceeds to tell Saul of how if David had meant to harm Saul... He could have taken his life just now in the cave while Saul was indisposed. David tells Saul that some of his men had even egged him on to take Saul's life. But David had told his men, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now David may not know for sure whether it is Saul's men who have planted this idea in Saul's head that David's trying to kill him, or if Saul has concocted it himself. But David assures Saul that he does not mean any harm to Saul. He had the perfect chance to kill Saul, but he did not take it. Now, David being there, following Saul out of the very cave that Saul had just been in, that was a fair amount of proof itself. But in verse 11, David produces irrefutable proof. He says there, see my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. David exposes the lie that Saul had the last few years of his, built the last few years of his kingdom upon. You see, instead of doing what a king of Israel was required to do, fighting the enemies of Yahweh, Saul had diverted the military resources to his personal vendetta against David. And he had justified it by telling himself and probably all those around him how much David hated him, how much of a threat David was to him and to the kingdom. And so instead of fighting the Philistines, fighting the Amorites, fighting the Hittites, fighting all of the enemies in the land of Canaan, 
Saul goes after the one man who most certainly is not his enemy, David. Saul had convinced himself that David hated him, that David wanted him dead so that David could steal away his throne from him. And the truth was that everything that Saul thought about David was true of himself. And this leads us to the second point of the sermon, reality check. The reality was that David, too, was the Lord's anointed. And though David would not lift a finger to hurt Saul, Saul did everything in his power to hurt David. By Saul's willingness to harm the Lord's anointed, he showed that he he had little or no regard for the Lord himself. David's refusal to lay a hand upon Saul, it certainly had to do with David's love for Saul, David's love for his, his great friend Jonathan, Saul's son. But more than that, it had to do with the fact that Saul was the Lord's anointed. And David had even greater respect for the Lord. In verse 13, David quotes what must have been a well-known ancient proverb at that time. And one commentator suggests that it is probably only half of the proverb with the other half, which would have been known to both David and Saul, implied there. The other half, he theorizes, this commentator, was probably something along the lines of good men are constructive, something like that which would have been coupled with out of the wicked comes wickedness. So out of the good comes good, out of the wicked comes wickedness. And the implication then, if this is correct, which again, we we hold to it very tenuously, if it is correct, the implication is that Saul is the wicked man of this proverb. Because what he is doing and pursuing and trying to murder the Lord's anointed, that is David, is wicked. David is trying to show Saul that all of the lies that he believes about David are actually true of himself. That he is the man, Saul, not David in this case. This is the reality check that David is trying to provide for Saul. And David also tries to bring Saul back to reality by reminding him of the close relationship that they once had. He begins his speech by calling Saul his lord and king. But then in verse 11, he calls Saul, my father. Now, in one sense, as king of Israel, Saul is father to all who are his subjects. He is their protector, their benefactor, their judge in disputes. But David's appeal is more personal and I believe more heartfelt. Jonathan is Saul's son. And he is David's best friend, one who is more like a brother to him than any of David's own brothers. And David, having served in Saul's court, playing the lyre for him during Saul's mad raving, saw a side of the king that few others had seen. There are times in our lives, brothers and sisters, when we need other brothers and sisters to speak the truth to us in love. When we are in sin, there are times when we need others to tell us that we are in sin because we often cannot see it for ourselves. It's a sad irony then that David will need a true brother to appeal to him when David is so mired in sin that he cannot tell right from wrong. And by God's grace, Nathan came and gave David a dose of reality and showed himself to be a true brother of David. Saul and later David exchanged God's truth for a lie. And David and later Nathan appealed to 
to them with the truth. And that brings us to the third and final point of the sermon, exchanging a lie for the truth. David appeals to Saul. David tells Saul he has never desired to kill him. David gives him irrefutable proof of this fact by holding up the corner of Saul's robe. And the beginning in verse 12, David makes an appeal to God to be the judge between himself and Saul. He says, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Saul has has hunted David. Saul has tried to kill him for years, but David leaves judgment and vengeance in God's hands. And after David implies in verse 13 that Saul is the wicked one, he tells Saul again, but my hand shall not be against you. Now think about this. Of the two, David has greater cause to pursue Saul than Saul to pursue him. David could fairly easily convince himself that it would be a form of self-defense to kill Saul. But David resists this. He does take a jab at Saul in verse 14 by reminding Saul that his duty as king requires him to pursue pursue Israel's enemies, but instead Saul has been pursuing a dead dog and a flea, someone who is not a threat at all to Israel or to the king. And in verse 15, David calls again on the Lord to be the judge between himself and Saul and to deliver him from Saul's hand. And with that speech, which is one of the longest speeches of David in the Bible, There's one other later on in 2 Samuel that is longer, but it is a prayer and not properly a speech. This speech comes to a close in verse 15. And so in verse 16, it's Saul's turn to speak. We read in verse 16, As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Now, we have discussed over the the many months that we've been in 1 Samuel, and especially once Saul was introduced and uh, once we began to see his erratic behavior, his irrational behavior, we've wondered, is he a madman? Is he insane? Is he simply evil? What's wrong with Saul? What's going on with Saul? And so it might be difficult for us to do this, but, but we need to try to put ourselves in Saul's position for a moment. Think about this. You, if you're Saul, you have convinced yourself that David is your enemy. And that he is trying everything in his power to kill you. So you need to kill him first. You're in pursuit of David. Among the cliffs overlooking the Dead Sea. Near En Gedi. And you go into a cave to relieve yourself. And you step out of the cave. And moments after you step out, you hear a voice of the very one you have been trying to kill. He's behind you. That would knock you off balance, I think, a little bit. You realize that he had the opportunity to stretch out his hand against you, that he could have stabbed you in the back as you walked out of the cave. And then you're told that he could have killed you while you were in the cave. That he was right next to you. But that he did not stretch out his hand against you. Saul here is faced with the truth that what he had convinced himself about David was not true. He's faced with the truth that David is a loyal subject. He is a true son of the king. He did not have malice in his heart towards Saul. And realizing all of this, perhaps just for a moment, but it seems like a genuine realization, Saul openly weeps before David. He tells David in verse 17, You are more righteous than I. 
for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And for the next several verses, Saul says exactly what we would want to hear in a confession of sin. And reading this section, I find myself rooting for Saul. I want to believe that his confession of sin is genuine. I want to believe that Saul is a deeply flawed, but despite that, genuine Old Testament saint. And based on the last few verses of of chapter 24, that seems pretty reasonable. Saul seems here to be embracing the truth. In verse 18, he accepts the fact that David had the chance to kill Saul, but did not take it. In verse 19, he calls upon the Lord to reward David with good for what David did to him that day. And he says in verse 20, And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. I know that that we have probably in this congregation those who who fall on on one side or the other. Will Saul be in heaven when we get there or will he not? And we'll only know for sure when we get to heaven. But for the moment, this passage gives us hope that he was an Old Testament believer in Christ. But this passage also teaches us something else. It teaches us that it's very easy to apologize. It's easy to confess sin and much harder truly to repent. Because the fact remains, as you keep reading, and and those of you who probably are already familiar with the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, you know what happens. That Saul once again will take up arms. Once again he will raise a portion of his army to go after David and to try to kill him. True repentance involves more than just saying, I'm sorry. That's a a starting point. But that's not the final word on true repentance. True repentance requires a change of behavior. We need to be reminded that none of us repents perfectly and that our salvation is not dependent upon how genuinely, how perfectly, how truly we repent of our sins. But repentance does involve a turning away from our sin and desiring and pursuing obedience to God and His commands. And so if a person says that they're sorry, but they show no signs of change in their behavior, it calls into question whether or not they truly are sorry. We get burned by this all the time, don't we? It's good to be generous. It's good to be expansive in granting forgiveness when someone asks for it. But after you have been burned two or three or four times by the same person, by doing the same kind of behavior that they told you they would never do again, it does call into question whether they really mean what they're saying. Saul's speech here is pretty convincing, but his actions speak loudly too. And that's why there's so much confusion over whether or not Saul had true faith. One thing is certain, however. The only way to combat lies is with the truth, and that is just what David has done. And quite often people do truly exchange a lie for the truth. Quite often. And perhaps you've experienced this when you've talked with a loved one, a friend. You've told them the truth of the gospel, and they've embraced it in faith. They're brought to a right understanding of their sinfulness and their great need. 
and the reality that Jesus Christ is the only one who can cleanse them from their sin and fill their need. Maybe if we didn't know more, if, if this ended here and Saul didn't try to attack David later on in chapter 26, maybe we could believe that this was a genuine show of repentance. But Saul ends his speech to David by asking him, when David becomes king, not to cut off Saul's offspring after him, not to destroy Saul's name out of his father's house. And this is somewhat of a selfish request, although an understandable one. And David swore to Saul that he would not do this. And David was true to his word. He ensured that the last remaining member of Saul's household, the son of Jonathan, that he always had a seat at David's table. David kept his word to Saul. But Saul failed to keep his word to David. Even so, David was just as much in need of a savior as Saul was. David, the king after God's own heart, was himself a vile sinner. Though David showed himself to be an Old Testament type of Christ in our passage, protecting Saul from judgment and wrath that Saul deserved, he was also very much like each of us, in need, to take, uh, need for someone to take his place as a sacrifice for sins. No less than we need someone to take our place as a sacrifice for our sins. And so we can give thanks, brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life, that he took upon himself the guilt of all of our sins, the weight of all of our lies, along with everything sinful that we have ever done. He took it upon himself when he was hanged on the cross. And if you believe this, if you trust in this, if you trust not in your own schemes, in your own wisdom, in your own cleverness, if you believe that you are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ alone, that your sins were exchanged for his righteousness, that you got his righteousness when he got your sins, if you believe this, brothers and sisters, then you will be saved. You are saved already. And you will be openly acknowledged and acquitted on the last day. And that is good news. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you are the Lord and giver of life and that you are truth itself. And that you have caused us by the power of your spirit to exchange the lie that we believed with the truth. So we thank you that we know the truth, that we know you. We pray that you would guide us with the truth. That we would always be seekers of it. We pray that you would give us wisdom to discern lies. We pray that we would be promoters of the truth. Because we know that all truth is God's truth. But especially, Lord, we pray that we would promote the most important truth that Jesus Christ is God who came in the flesh and lived a perfect life for us and died a perfect death so that we might live with you forever. 
We pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen.